Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Dr John Cunningham of Trinity College Dublin and the University of Exeter. His paper was entitled The Medical World of Early Modern Ireland. Good afternoon to you all. Uh, My paper today arises from my work on the Exeter-based project, uh, The Medical World of Early Modern England, Wales and Ireland, circa 1500 to 1715. My aims today are quite modest. I want primarily to give you some insight into uh, our project and also into the work that I've been doing over the past uh, 11 months or so. As I'm still very much engaged in data collection, I'm not here to offer any major conclusions about medicine in early modern Ireland. And I hope that what I have to say will be of interest and I welcome any questions, observations or advice, especially advice that any of you may uh, wish to offer. So just, this is some uh, detail on the project. It's uh, supported by a Welcome uh, Humanities Investigator Award for a five-year period. The PI is Professor Johnson Barry in Exeter and uh, Dr Peter Elmer is Senior Research Fellow. There are three of us working as Associate Research Fellows, Justin Colson on England, Alan Whitty on Wales and myself uh, covering the Irish research. Um, I replaced uh, Dr Hannah Murphy, who left, left the team last autumn. And we also have a steering committee that includes Maggie Pelling from Oxford and Patrick Wallace from, from the LSE. So the aim of the project is to develop a groundbreaking database with biographies of all medical practitioners active in England, Wales and Ireland in the period in question. Uh, this will then be used to produce the first all-round study of the nature and impact of medical practice across those three countries to be published as a major monograph by a leading university press. Uh, People sometimes ask why Scotland was left out. It it wasn't down to Alex Salmond or anything like that. (laughs) Apparently the advice was that taking on Scotland as well would make the project uh, too unwieldy, but I think it's uh, it's it's a thing that's potentially uh, going to be done further down the line. So the project database builds on a prototype already developed by Peter Elmer. He has spent many years gathering uh, relevant information primarily for England. Maggie Pelling also brings a large amount of data. Beginning in the 1970s, she has put together over 22,000 index cards of biographical information on medical practitioners, and these are currently being processed. Uh, Ian Mortimer's data from English probate accounts is is also being utilised. So the project seeks to address uh, four main questions uh, as follows. What, when and where were the major changes in the character and scope of medical practice in England, Wales and Ireland in the period? What was the changing relationship between supply and demand in the provision of medical care by medical practitioners? How did uh, the education and career patterns of medical practitioners vary, both over time and between different types of community? And how far did these reflect the traditional uh, divisions of medicine, uh, physics, surgery and pharmacy? Also, what were the broader roles and impacts of medical practitioners within their communities, notably in intellectual, cultural and ideological, ideological developments and in causing socio-economic changes? So these are pretty big and challenging questions, and I have to say I'm enjoying taking part in the team's efforts to answer them. Many of the challenges that we face are predictable enough. Uh, Deciding who counts as a medical practitioner, striking an appropriate balance between qualitative and quantitative data collection, grappling with issues of archival variability, and deciding how to organise our information. Inconsistencies in contemporary terminology and in the use of occupational labels also pose problems. I'm thinking especially of things like barbers and surgeons and barber surgeons uh, when I I mention that. 
Commonly occurring occupational labels such as gentleman and merchant can also sometimes conceal uh, medical practitioners. Uh, to take an example from the, the 1641 depositions, Thomas Andrew, a Protestant gent from County Clare, reported his losses of farm animals, crops, instruments of husbandry, leases of land and debts owed to him. There's nothing unusual about that at all for those of you who know the depositions. But this gentleman also lost books, silver instruments of surgery, physical drugs and pots and glasses belonging thereunto. Uh, so the relative obscurity of men such as Andrew, so I haven't come across in any other sources yet, makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to determine very much about his medical practice. It's also necessary to sort the doctors of physic from the doctors of law and divinity, although the relative prominence of, of these people renders the task a, a little bit easier. Um, so what we're working with then is an event-based database which allows data to be entered in a simple way and looks something like uh, this. Uh, we are recording as events the many, instances, the many instances where medical practitioners show up in historical records. For example, a physician could well show up as the father of a child being baptised, as a leaseholder or landowner, as a university student at an earlier stage, as a taxpayer, as the author of a medical textbook, as a member of a college or society, uh, as a testator of a will and so on. These and many other sorts of information, when put together, can allow a range of insights into the place of individual practitioners and groups or networks of practitioners in a range of contexts, the family, the parish or community, the guild, the college and so on. It need hardly be said that the non-survival of so much early modern Irish source material has important implications for my work, as it does for all of us. While I was already very much aware of this problem before I came to medical history, its significance has been reinforced by my recent experience of working closely with English historians and getting a sense of the relative richness of many of the sources at their disposal. My colleagues, Justin Colson and Patrick Wallace, have been particularly active in making use of probate data from the Prerogative Court of Canterbury and elsewhere. Using the occupational information available in the, in the relevant indexes, they have been able to, to begin to piece together a picture of, of various trends across the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. I'm just going to sh show you a few slides of the sort of things that they've been doing uh, based on this uh, will information. Uh, this map, uh, I just want to talk about the six English counties. You can ignore the, the, the Welsh ones. So uh, Cambridgeshire, Cheshire, Durham, Hampshire, Northumberland and Surrey. Um, the combination of probate data with other research on life expectancy and population structure for these areas allows Colson and Wallace to explore all sorts of questions across a long time frame. So uh, things like this, um, how many practitioners? This, this graph uh, shows uh, practitioners as a share of the population of people who made wills. Uh, where occupational information is available in the indexes. Uh, what you see here is a dramatic increase from the 1630s, uh, apothecaries accounting for the greatest proportion up until the 1750s, uh, when surgeons take over as the largest group, and physicians becoming more common in the late 18th century. This is another representation of the same data for, for those six counties. And here we can see a steady increase in numbers up to 1700, and then later in the 18th century, the number of surgeons and physicians uh, whose wills have, uh, have survived continuing to increase while the, uh, the apothecaries decline. Uh, I'm, I'm not the person best qualified to explain the full significance uh, of, of this research. And it, it's, it's also a work in progress and I'm grateful to them for allowing me to show you a few of their slides.
Um, I've just included it really to let you see something of the scale and ambition of one section of the English part of the project. And their analysis of this sort of data is not confined uh, to six counties. So th this is just some information from uh, using the prerogative court of Canterbury, uh, Wills as a whole, across the from an early period up to the, the middle of the, the 19th century here. So you can see a, ma a major decline in, in uh, religious wills for obvious reasons, an increase in the number of gentlemen and the number of medical wills kind of going along the bottom uh, with, with, a, with a gradual increase. It doesn't look like much, but there's a huge amount of uh, the numbers are very large here. So that the slight increase represents quite a lot. And then this is, again, another uh, representation of the medical data. Then, once again, um, you can see surgeons on the increase uh, and uh, so on. The, the barber surgeons, because of various changes in the middle of the 18th century, that, that term goes out. And uh, there are a whole, whole lot of other things that they're doing, anyway, with this data, tracing trends um, across a long, a long uh, time frame. So when this sort of information is put uh, together alongside other available sources uh, for England, such as parish registers, apprentice roles, freedom registers, and various other things, it's conceivable that they will do a very good job in enabling remarkable and detailed new insights into the medical world of early modern England. So where does all of that leave Ireland? It's perhaps inevitable in a project such as what we're doing that Wales and Ireland end up appearing as the poor relations, the Celtic fringe, uh, as more detailed sources and several other factors enable more comprehensive research on England. There's little point, I think, in getting too preoccupied with this issue. It makes more sense, I think, to use the research that has been done on England, France and other places as a stimulus for work on Ireland to see how far the methods used elsewhere can be of use for us. It's also important, I think, to keep in mind factors that make Ireland stand out in some different ways and to undertake uh, appropriate analysis of those factors. I'm thinking here of the, the Gaelic hereditary medical families, uh, the opportunities that military conquests um, offer to newly arrived medical practitioners, and the manner in which uh, medicine offered uh, continuing career opportunities to the adherents of a majority creed uh, for, for whom uh, other avenues had been closed off. Another exciting uh, factor is the range and quality of uh, recent publications on medical history in Ireland, not least those relating to the early modern period. Within the project itself, Peter Elmer had already compiled mini-biographies of uh, some 200 and, 208 individuals um, active in medicine who either originated in Ireland or spent part of their careers there. So um, there's plenty, plenty to work with from what's been done already. I want to use my remaining time to touch upon uh, some of the research uh, that I've undertaken since last autumn. I haven't gotten as far as doing fancy uh, uh, pictures or um, slides like this as yet, but I'll just have a simple and a very basic list to give you an idea of some of the stuff uh, that I've been going through. Uh, so as a newcomer to medical history, there was no shortage of reading that I had to do, and I'm still getting up to speed uh, with a very large body of relevant secondary literature. In relation to the to the primary sources, I really decided to start with what I knew best, which was the, the mid-17th century, and a lot of things that don't necessarily strike anybody as sources for medical history, but uh, there you go. So the 1641 depositions, which, which I put on my list here, best known as a source for murder and mayhem, but a number of medical practitioners do feature, and some of them prominent in that mayhem. Uh, in several parts of the country, imprisoned Protestants were set to work to make gunpowder, Charlemagne Fort, Dr. Hodges, having apparently failed to make gunpowder, was half-hanged, imprisoned, and later murdered. At Waterford and Kilkenny, Catholic apothecaries were involved in gunpowder production, with Richard Naylor apothecary among those supposedly involved in digging up Protestant corpses at Waterford for use in making saltpetre. 
Physicians also featured as leadership figures on the Catholic side, most notably Gerald Fennell, who sat on the Supreme Council of the Catholic Confederation in the 1640s. In County Kerry, Dr John Field was described as, quote, a most pestilent and pernicious enemy to the English nation, unquote. In County Limerick, Dr. Daniel Higgins played a prominent role, and he later faced allegations of having stolen the cattle belonging to two other physicians, uh, Dominic White and Thomas Arthur. One of the more complicated cases was that of Dr. Donna Healy, who came from County Cork. A large number of witnesses implicated him in the, murder, in the hanging of two uh, Protestants at the beginning of the rebellion. When the Cromwellians eventually caught up with him in 1652, Healy insisted that he had merely met the men on the road while en route to see a patient, and that he had had nothing to do with their deaths. Moreover, he insisted that in 1641 he was, quote, so much a stranger in his own country, for that he came but a year before out of France, unquote. So Healy then was presumably in France for his education, although he isn't uh, on any of the lists that I've seen so far. The main one I have is uh, Lawrence Brockless's list of the, of the, the Reims graduates. Uh, a possible case of very bad timing was that of Munmori Loney, a surgeon from Fermanagh, who made his first ever trip to Dublin in late October 1641. Um, while he insisted that he had come to town to seek employment with a physician or surgeon, the government suspected that he was in fact surgeon to the rebels who had intended to seize the city. I haven't found any, any other trace of Munmori Loney, uh, surgeon. The depositions then, while they're obviously not a major source for medical history, do, do tell us a little bit. Uh, we, we see um, attempts to exploit uh, Protestant prisoners um, on the basis of their medical skills to make gunpowder and so on. We also see a picture of Catholic practitioners, um, physicians assuming or being thrust into positions of leadership at the local and national level, urban-based apothecaries using their skills to manufacture gunpowder, and surgeons obtaining employment with the military forces. I mean, none, none of that is really too surprising, I suppose. In the 1650s, the possession of medical expertise was a crucial factor that allowed some Catholics to avoid the misfortunes that befell many of their co-religionists. The cases of the physicians Arthur and Fennell are well known. In Mallow, Cromwellian officials sought to retain the services of Dr. Anthony Mochinog and to ensure that he would not be transplanted to Connacht. As far as I can tell, Mochinog eventually ended up in Castle Island in County Kerry, where his son and namesake uh, later succeeded him in his practice, and, and they were there into, into the 18th century. At Clonmel, the apothecaries Walter Brennock and James Saul did a, good, uh, did a good trade supplying drugs for the treatment of sick soldiers at the local Cromwellian military hospital. Beyond the fact that there were 358 soldiers in the hospital in Dublin in September 1657, I haven't come across very much as yet about these Cromwellian military hospitals. I know there was also one at Carrickfergus, but the information is very um, fragmentary. Uh, neither have I discovered very much about the Office of Apothecary General, which existed in the 1650s. This role was filled by a man named John Clark uh, for most of the decade. By 1659, it had been taken over by Richard Clark. This was perhaps the same Richard Clark of Dublin Apothecary, whose will was proved in the prerogative court in August 1662. So this Richard Clark then is someone who made a, a successful transition from uh, a, a role associated with the army to civilian life after the Restoration. Uh, the abstract of his will that I've seen shows that his father's name was John, so it's possible that pre the first Apothecary General was the father of the, the subsequent one. Um, I'm not sure when that office comes back in either. I know there, there are various other physicians general and surgeons general, but apothecary general, something I still have to try and figure out. Now that brings me on nicely to the subject of wills. The work being done by my English uh, colleagues on wills inevitably prompted me to have a look into what might be done for Ireland. It's not, it's not something I had really previously attempted to get to grips with, collections of wills. 
I discovered that all of the surviving wills had been very helpfully brought together in one place, which was then unhelpfully burned in 1922. <laughs> um, having said that, it's clear from the evidence available that quite a few early modern wills were already gone long before uh, 1922. You can see that with the, the Dublin diocesan wills, uh, where there's, there's a description of the collection from the 1890s. There are already massive gaps, gaps in the archive before 1922. So my starting point inevitably was uh, the Index to the Prerogative Wills of Ireland, published by Sir Arthur Vickers in 1897. Using a cut-off date of uh, 1750, uh, Vickers' index shows up about 179 persons of interest, including a few wives and widows of physicians. The earliest in, in that index is James Field of Dublin, a medical doctor, whose will was proved in 1624, and he's just one of four dating prior to 1650. For the second half of the century, there are just 50 persons for whom medical, uh, medical occupations are given in, in that index. Uh, the, the index to the Dublin Diocesan Wills, published in 1897, shows about 115 persons of interest prior to 1750, the earliest being a physician called William Penn, whose will dated from 1637. One of the reasons why the Dublin Index, aside from the fact that it's printed, one of the reasons why it's more useful than that for some other dioceses is because it includes occupational data. For many other dioceses, occupational data in the index is as patchy, often noting only clergymen and army officers, and sometimes there's just no occupational data at all. Take example, the volume published uh, by Fillimore and Trift for Court, Ross and Cloyne, where I found just three individuals from the 17th century bearing medical occupations, two physicians and a surgeon. So the sparseness of the occupational data in the indexes for the early modern period uh, very definitely precludes any effort to use those indexes uh, to track long-term trends in numbers of medical practitioners um, of various kinds. And that is to leave aside the not insignificant questions, uh, such as how many wills were, were already lost before those indexes were compiled in the first place. So while the surviving will data cannot support efforts to piece together a big picture in the way that Colston and Wallace are doing for England, uh, the fact remains that the individual wills that do survive in genealogical collections and elsewhere are very interesting documents. Aside from the few will and grant books surviving in the National Archives, uh, the notebooks of, of transcripts made by Sybil Kirkpatrick a century ago and the relevant transcripts and abstracts uh, in, the, in genealogical collections in the National Archives and the National Library are all very helpful. These wills, uh, I'll just focus on a few very quickly on a few minor points. These wills uh, occasionally reveal the testator's anxiety to safeguard the carrying on of medical practice in the next generation of the family. Patrick Scheel, a doctor from Mayo who made his will in 1729, had a favourite nephew, Patrick, but he was also aware that his other nephew, Owen, might ultimately prove more suitable to the profession. He entrusted discerning and unbiased men with the task of deciding whether, quote, the said Patrick shall be judged to be of a superior genius to his brother Owen, as well in capacity of learning as in gravity of life, probity of manners, good humour and other virtuous qualities, unquote. So these things that are listed there are obviously uh, Shields' recipe for what makes uh, a good doctor. His will, it must have taken him about a week and a half to write it. It keeps going on and on and he keeps, he keeps changing his mind, so it's, it's, quite, it's quite entertaining, but he, he's certainly not too sure about his nephews. Uh, another will, for example, in 1666, Gerald Fennell used his will to offer a blessing to his patrons, the butlers of Ormond, and to recommend to their service his relative and namesake, quote, being bred by me for the service of their house and trusting that he would provide serviceable and sorry, trusting that he will prove serviceable and faithful to them in his vocation, for that I am fully satisfied he spent his time well in his studies. Unquote. While I can find the, the elder Fennel in university records, I haven't found the, the younger one yet. Um, 
Um, other surviving wills also contain evidence of, of this kind of uh, patron-client relationship, and it's something that would bear uh, further investigation. Another important source is the Register of uh, Freeman of Dublin. I've accessed a digitised version of Gertrude Triff's transcript, which is over 23,000 entries and is available to the library, uh, the website of Dublin City Library. Using a cut-off date of 1715, this resource shows up around 500 persons of interest, 20 of whom were made free in the 16th century, between 1675 and 1598. So overall, what I'm looking at here are 40 apothecaries, 65 barbers, 286 barber surgeons, 9 medical doctors, 6 druggists, and 102 surgeons. Um, I also came across, in the, it's been digitised in the database, there's a lot of healers about, but I figured out eventually that a healer was a man who repaired your roof rather than your health. So uh, watch out for those. Uh, the, the names of masters are sometimes also recorded. Two of the apothecaries made free in the 16th century served their time with Thomas Smith. Smith also occupied the office of mayor and laid the foundation stone of Trinity College. Uh, some of the trends that can be seen in the admissions to Freedom of Dublin as a whole reflect various wider contexts. Numbers plummeted in the 1640s unsurprisingly, while they reached a peak in the 1680s, boosted first by the arrival of French Protestants and then by the readmission of Catholics later in the decade. Data on admission to freedom in other towns and cities in the early modern period is, is much more sparse, and I think Professor's Gillespie, Professor Gillespie's point about the condition of corporation buildings is relevant there, that if you didn't have a roof on your building, you weren't going to do a good job of preserving uh, paperwork. Um, another area where the Dublin records are much better than for the rest of the country are parish records, especially the registers. Um, a number of you will be already familiar with par the Dublin parish registers. The best one for my purposes is St. Michael's because it has uh, occupational data much more than the other ones. So from what I said, it should be apparent that the variety of useful sources available for Dublin puts it some way ahead of the rest of the country when it comes to trying to piece together details of early modern practitioners. <coughs> this is not too surprising. Take, for example, the case of George Byrne. Byrne served his apprenticeship as a barber surgeon with William Bell, a barber surgeon who lived on Copper Alley in St John's Parish. He was made a freeman in 1659, and then we can trace in the parish register the baptisms of his children, the fact that he buried them all pretty soon after he baptised them, and so on. Uh, Byrne was the master of the, the Dublin Guild of the Barber Surgeons in 1673, and we can find him as a taxpayer in 1687, and we can find his will 10 years later in 1697. So, potentially, if we can get enough little bits of information about enough people, while the information about Byrne on its own might not seem that interesting, um, I'd be hopeful that there's enough data to maybe piece together some sort of better understanding of the Barber Surgeons as a group uh, in Dublin. Uh, my last point, then, one area where it seems difficult to uncover much information is re in relation to female medical practitioners. The index to the Dublin Diocesan Grant books reveal just one midwife, uh, Susanna Sterling, who was licensed in 1664. Another midwife, Margaret Birmingham, was buried at St. Michael's in December 1672, and I haven't found any, other as yet, any others as yet. Most references to nurses are to wet nurses, but a possible exception is Janet Tremble, a widow and nurse at the Royal Hospital, who made her will in 1726. The 1641 depositions provide another rare insight. In 1642, Thomas Fitzgerald reported that, having fallen from his horse, he had gone to the castle of Clongo's Wood to receive treatment from, quote, a woman called Mary Barnwall, which had skill in surgery, unquote. Four decades later, Thomas Dinley, on his tour of Ireland, found that Carlo, that, quote, among the remarkables here is a woman who professed, beside peruke-making and polling, cutting of hair, trimming and shaving of men, at which she had a delicate hand and is much resorted to by the garrison and country gentlemen, unquote. I haven't managed to figure out yet what polling was, but I'm wondering if it's a reference to bloodletting. I'm not sure about that.
Uh, so I'm going to stop there. Uh, I think I've, I hope at least I've given you some sort of worthwhile insight into what we're doing and that I've managed to do some sort of uh, job on telling you about the sources I'm trying to use. There's plenty more for me to do over the, following, uh, the coming year and much more to learn as well. I hope when our database is fully operational and publicly available in due course, uh, that will be a very, a very useful resource for you interested in early modern medicine. Uh, our website has a good, a good bit of information on it, and some uh, people involved with the project have Twitter accounts if you're into that sort of thing. So thanks for your attention.